Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Health Connect Hub podcast. You are joined with Kate and Rob and occasionally Kate's dog, Ralph. Here we have the chats with health professionals and beyond to find out what makes them tick, to get to know the person behind the profile and to get their spin and take on health and how they implement it in their day to day. We hope you enjoy and we can't wait to share these conversations with you. Welcome to another installment of the Health Connect Hub podcast. You, as usual, are listening to uh, Rab and Kate as we chat to great people in health and health-related spaces about who they are and why they do what they do. Um, Kate, it's good to see you again. It's rare that we'll record almost back-to-back podcasts, but here we are again. I know. We don't know ourselves. (laughs) We're feeling very on top of things, but it's good to be back. I'm very excited about today's uh, chat. Yeah, absolutely. We are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Peter Olashoga and um, getting into everything. Yeah, I got the thumbs up there that I. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I think I my heart. My rate, yeah, my heart rate went wait, wait, nine, 90 million there as I was doing that. I was like, don't mess it up, don't mess it up. But um, Pete, if I can't call you Pete, uh, it's great to have you on board. I know we've been chatting back and forth trying to get this um, sorted, and I'm glad that we eventually have you with us here tonight so again you're very very welcome no thank you very much thanks for having me i'm really uh, excited to to be here with you guys cool appreciate that um we'll launch right in again because you know it's it's an evening podcast so we want to be mindful of time and everything but for any of our listeners who perhaps are you know not familiar with you or what you do um tell us what your story is my story? That's a, a big question. I'll start with where I am now, I guess. Um, I'm a, a senior lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, oh, where to start? Where to start? Um, I grew up in Gateshead. No one knows where Gateshead is, so I always just say Newcastle. Yeah. Um, and I moved to Sheffield in 1998 to study psychology at university. Um, and I've stayed here ever since. So I've been here like 20 to 23 years or something like that now. Um, I played basketball and I coached basketball and had a couple of years out after I graduated uh, from Sheffield and then found myself back in academia uh, where I discovered sports psychology. Um, Mm. Didn't realize it was a thing when I was doing my undergraduate degree, discovered it and went back to do my MSc and then kind of fell into a PhD and obviously, from my, my coaching background, the natural thing was for me to study psychology of coaching uh, and stress and well-being and burnout. So that was what my PhD was in. Um, and I now find myself in the psychology department at uh, Sheffield Hallam University teaching there. Nice, nice. And like, was there anything, I suppose it's a little bit, maybe it isn't a surprise or is not or is it isn't, but is there anything that kind of drew you particularly to like this, the psychological side of things, or was it just uh, this kind of progression over time? Um, I, I think I was always interested. I was a, a, a big people watcher when mm. I was growing up, when I was younger. Um, and I was always really interested in, you know, what drives people? Why do people make the decisions that they do? Why do they behave in certain ways in certain times and places? So I was always kind of drawn to understanding how the mind works. Um, So that was kind of what drew me to psychology in the first place. 
Um, so like I said, I kind of came down to, to Sheffield to study that. I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. Like I think most undergraduates um, <laughs> got to my third year and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't really know what to do now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had a couple of, of years in the, in the real world. And then, like I say, discovered this, this thing called sports psychology. Uh, and obviously my sporting background, my coaching and play, and I was kind of really drawn to, to that. Mm, mm. No, it's really interesting. Like just from, from my perspective, I feel I have only discovered the, like I'm dipping my, my toes in the, the field of the wide field of psychology. And I, I'm kind of like curses. Why did I not have an understanding of this? Like earlier, <laughs> like even just, just being able to read around the area and yeah, I, I like, I mean, I just think it's fascinating. So it's always interesting to talk to someone who's been in that and immersed in that in different, in different aspects. Mm. Well, it's, it's such a broad subject, isn't it? And it encompasses mm. so many things and, and like everything that we see around us and the way that people are and the way that they, they behave. And, you know, it, it, the psychology behind everything, uh, it drives our behavior and the behavior that we see in other people. So there's so much to it. Um, and I just, I really enjoyed that about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think early on in like, like the way I grew up, there was always this kind of like, um, not skepticism, but like people would, would look at the study of psychology or any sort of psychological science-based stuff. It's like, Oh, I don't know about that. They may, they have you talking about things and, <laughs> and then you come back and you're a completely different person, that sort of stuff. So I suppose now being able to, to look at it and, and see, what it's what it's giving people what it's giving different avenues in like as you're saying sport and everything like that i think it's it's really interesting to to be able to chat about it in this way mm. yeah no absolutely it's uh it, like i said it's, a, it's such a huge all-encompassing subject uh, and there's so many applications to, to so many different fields but obviously um we're seeing much more of that in sport over the last well, I don't know, probably sort of 10, 20 years or so. Mm. Um, especially recently, we're seeing athletes talk, not, not just about the psychology of performance, but about their mental health and their mental well-being as well. It's such a huge topic at the moment, especially coming off the back of the Olympics um, with so many athletes talking about mental health and, and, and well-being. Yeah, yeah. Actually, just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a Kate here and, and go on a different, <laughs> a different direction here, but it's something that came up uh in one of the other episodes that we have recorded about um like Naomi Osaka and how that was such a big thing and it kind of like it erupted into this I suppose this big movement and and it's that kind of recognition of of the importance in like athletes are like they're not just there to perform their sport to the high level there are things going on in the background and then obviously we had the, a similar situation with Simone Biles. And then you look back even just maybe, maybe 10 days ago and you have the huge, like the, the deposition or the hearing on the Larry Nazar case. And you see how that was absolutely going to be going on in the background. And yet people are like, well, they got to do what they got to do. And it's like, no, you got to give people space to be able to like, you know, you give anyone else that same level of space. So I think it's, yeah, like, as you're saying within the, the sporting field, it's really coming into the forefront, which is obviously great to see. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the, the kind of incidences that you just mentioned there, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, uh, I think Adam Peaty talked about, came off mm. the back of the Olympics, the swimmer, talked about needing some space for his own mental health. And, you know, we're, we're starting to, starting to 
change the narrative around sport almost that you know these people are athletes uh, sorry these people are, are people as well you know they're not just athletes they're not just there to, to entertain us um and yeah it's, it's it's really interesting to see how that is changing and how athletes are driving that that change in the way that we perceive what sport is almost mm, mm. so then i suppose in a, in a similar kind of vein is is that something that absolutely excites you about right now or is there something relating to that that might be something that excites you about right now? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of things and, and they are sort of tied together. You know, the, the, there is this whole sort of explosion around the discussion of, of mental health. Um, and I'll come into that probably a little bit later on, but I think um, seeing athletes using their voices and really feeling feeling comfortable using their voices for all sorts of things has been absolutely wonderful to see over the last 18 months or so. Um, you know, if we think back to 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and the summer of Black Lives Matter and this kind mm. of almost awakening to social justice issues, it's, it's been athletes that have kept that conversation going. Mm when perhaps other people have gone back to their, their lives uh, as lockdowns have ended, you know, um, athletes have kept that conversation going. So you've got the premiership players who are taking a knee before games and the uh, women's England football team doing the same. Um, you have the players in the NBA uh, coming out and making statements. You have Naomi Osaka wearing the masks with, you know, the mm. names of, of, uh, of black people who've been murdered by the police. So it's, it, it, I, I'm really excited to see athletes being able to use their voices in that way to keep those conversations about social social justice going and you know we're, we're kind of seeing the world changing in front of us um and yeah there's lots of horrible stuff going on mm. um you know we're still in the middle of a pandemic let's not forget that um but i think you know seeing that the sort of shift in people's thinking about issues of race and gender inequality and transphobia and kind of, you know, so on and so forth. But I think, you know, seeing that shift in people's thinking and seeing athletes leading that in, in, in a lot of ways, um, I, I, I love that. I love seeing it and I want to see more of it. I want to see athletes using their voices and feeling like that they can do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I, I think it was on something that, that, you and um, Hugh talked about on the podcast, or maybe it was in, in my head somewhere else, but the the fact of representation as well and how that plays a role in, in the, I suppose, cultural and community perception of um, people groups who essentially are marginalized. I mean, we, we look at, uh, like over in the States, I remember when Colin Kaepernick took the knee for, first, for the first time, like preseason mm -hmm. shouldn't have really mattered from, from a from a media perspective but it because it you know it's a preseason game doesn't really matter but so much attention was drawn to it and so many things surrounded that and you have people who wade into the discussion about it without really looking at how one now like what it's cost what it's cost him but on the, on the flip side i think if you discuss it with him he would be very much so well look what it's actually started look at this thing that you know, people meant for, you know, that they were going to try and cover it up and, and move on. And 
now it's this it's this huge thing that is really drawing attention and so being able to have as you're saying athletes have that voice that isn't just about turning up and performing and you know playing to the fans and going to that direction they are actually no actually we are complex individuals that experience a lot more and go through a lot more than just you know as athletes we're expected to so i think that is something that is is you know revolutionary to see it is one of those kind of maybe it has the the starting off of that tiny revolution aspect that is just going to continue to snowball so yeah i think i'm excited about it too and i think from what you said as well you're getting that same feeling as well yeah i mean the, the interesting thing is though that it's not necessarily a new thing hmm. and we're kind of veering completely off on a tangent here but if you, <laughs> you know if you think about kind of the history of, of, of athletes in sport and, and athlete protests in sport this goes hmm. back you know back to the civil rights movement you know muhammad yeah. ali and, and, and uh, tommy smith and john carlos at the olympics with the yeah. raised you know and um that they, they were vilified for this and mm-hmm. you know think of uh, Maya Moore in the women's NBA and uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf as well his career was ended as a basketball player because he took a stand against the uh, yeah, injustice in America even Colin Kaepernick like you mentioned and that was 2016 I think yeah so, yeah not, so not you know a long time ago and just in that short time we're seeing uh, the likes of Naomi Osaka and, and, and others being able to speak out and talk much more freely than they were even five years ago. So it's, it's a massive change in the way that we are um, perceiving athletes and, the, and their voices. Yeah, I think, I suppose to, to continue on in, in this direction, do you, it's a hard one to ask, but do you see, do you see enough kind of a, of a groundswell in the change in public perception beyond just, I suppose we can get stuck in kind of our, our silos or our, our um, kind of bubbles of, well, we're, mm. we're supporting this, but beyond that, is that, is that actually stretching out more than, than we think it does it have the capacity to do so? Obviously I think it does, but is this just a product of, of time and change and people's attitudes? Well, I, I think, there's probably a couple of things at play here. You know, there, there is that sort of change in attitudes that, that we've seen over the last few years or so. There's the role of social media as well. You know, it's like Marcus Rashford is feeding hungry kids. Mm. He's got more Twitter followers than most of the MPs sitting in parliament. So athletes have this reach that other people perhaps don't. And, and people are sitting up and listening. Uh, mm. and, and that's only a good thing to kind of bring it back to you know the health aspect of it this is good for people's mental health yeah. you know if we're having these conversations again around mental health and sport athletes are doing that around social injustice around uh, gay rights and trans rights and, and, and racism like those things are having a beneficial effect on people's mental health things that they probably wouldn't have talked about before are now okay well we can talk about this this is okay and you know, I think it's it's like I said, it's it's wonderful to see uh, sport and and athletes being a real driving force behind some of that change. I think, hundred percent. Um, so like obviously we we've gone in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. Just just briefly, this which which is fantastic. I mean, I was hoping we would touch on some of this for sure, but I suppose in in a I suppose maybe a similar kind of thread like a lot of weight is given to a person's kind of why and 
relating to like the psychological side of things, mm. do you feel that your why is kind of wrapped up in some of these areas as well as they emerge and as, as the, the field of sports psychology develops as well? Um, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, th- I probably would have said that my why, if you, want to, if you want to kind of call it that, would be just to find enjoyment and fun in, in life, in everything that I do. Um, and I always try and do that as much as possible. Most of the things that I do are just to make myself laugh. Like the, the podcast, the 80% <laughs> mental podcast. I started that whole thing just because I thought it would be funny. Uh, t- t- turns out it's been pretty good, but you know, I just the, the whole purpose behind it was for like me to sit down and have a laugh with a couple of friends. Um, so I, I, you know, but you posing that question is my why wrapped up in, in some of this stuff? I think it probably is now. Hmm. Um, and again, that's maybe a change over the last four or five years, maybe since the, the sort of 2016 referendum where we've seen an increase in hostility and racism. Mm. And um, yeah, I think, I think it probably is tied up in, in some of this stuff and uh, trying to, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but trying to make the world a better place, but doing that by trying to get people to just think about the world around them. And again, this is psychology. Again, this is critical thinking, you know, like yeah. just getting people to think about the world around them. Think of, you know, look at the evidence, look at what's in front of your face uh, and understand your own perhaps cognitive biases, um, understand the way that your brain works and why you think certain ways about certain things. So, so yeah, it, it is kind of tied up in all of that, the psychology of it and um, like this whole social justice um, thing i can't think of a better word um but i I think yeah probably the last sort of few years it is it is tied up a little bit in that Mm. and and do you feel that perhaps uh, well this is i'm not saying it's a bad question to ask but like (laughs) given given your your role in kind of academia do you feel almost burdened with the responsibility there or is it more actually no this is more kind of privileged side of things that i have the opportunity to do this um I think, well, I do feel a certain responsibility uh, in, in in academia. I'm, I, and I think all lecturers will probably say the same thing. But you know, my job isn't to tell people what to think; it's to tell them how to think. Mm. You know, how to think. I always say this to my students. You know, the thing that employers want is the ability to communicate and the ability to think critically. Mm. That that that's it. If you can think critically, look at the world around you, and kind of not just jump on the first thought that comes into your head and actually think about stuff like that's a skill. Mm. So I I feel the responsibility to um, help students think critically uh, about the world. So in in that way, I do feel a a sort of responsibility. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I like it. Right. So last, last one for me, and then I will hand over to Kate, but I guess this was kind of something similar again as these as these questions have gone on but what is the most important thing that i suppose people should know about you or that you would like people to know about you um 
I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't drink hot drinks. I don't drink tea or coffee. Never have. People find that weird. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, offended by that. No, don't <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my father-in-law has been offering me cups of tea for the last 20 years and he still hasn't clocked on that I just don't drink hot drinks. Well, no, like that, that's an interesting one because I'm, I'm not a tea person myself and I was definitely one of the, the late adopters of coffee. So oh, yeah. it's not, not out of the question there. No, well, you know, people keep telling me about the the sort of benefits of it for training as well. Yeah, uh, and uh, I just, I, it just, you've ruined a perfectly good glass of water. You just, <laughs> you've warmed it up and made it filthy. Like, what are you doing? Like, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, that, that's not necessarily the most important thing uh, that people should know about me, but that, that's the thing that springs to mind. I don't know. But you never know; it might actually end up in in people not being so kind of forthcoming with their offering of teas and, and coffees to you now for now it's like all right we don't don't offer the man tea and coffee just let him be let him be yeah. you're probably hoping for something a little bit more deep and meaningful there but no that's, no that's, that's all that's all i've got <laughs> that's perfect that's perfect uh, i am going to hand over now to kate who will um run away with the i suppose whatever she feels is worthwhile asking it now so kate over to you thank you um i if you don't mind please want to uh run back maybe to towards the beginning of this conversation just um i suppose as a, a sports person myself and basketball being my my jam so to speak oh, cool. um yeah no that's that's my baby <laughs> um so i, I can understand maybe like I'm still well I recently actually have stopped playing basketball to pursue football but um, it still holds a, a very important part I suppose in um to me so um what I'm trying to get at if I can ever get the question out of my mouth is um I'm suppose I'm coming towards the latter part of my career and I'm accepting that you know the body's not going to hang on to what it can do for for all that much longer um did you find it difficult to transition because I think very often kind of things that we go through or challenges we go through in sport can reflect some hurdles that we face in life so and I think we all have to make transitions you know getting older changing career whatever it might be like coming to that going from athlete to coach um like how did you manage that change because i'm sure well i don't know you tell me was it a big change like or well interestingly i I, it wasn't really a transition that i made in that sense i um i played i never played at any great level but i played 19 seasons of uh, of national league basketball over in, in england and um a couple of years i was a player coach never ever do that yeah, I was like, are you mental? Yeah, I did that for I did that for a couple of years and I just never, never, never again. Um, but then I kind of I kind of gave up the coaching part of it. I did like little bits here and there, um, but I just I kept playing. Um, I kept playing and then I kind of stopped that. Um uh probably about five or six. It was just before my daughter was born, I stopped playing. Um so yeah, I never sort of really made that transition to coach from player in that sense. Okay. Um, 
but yeah kind of trying to do both at the same time was just that was just not not a great idea don't ever do that no you don't you don't have to convince me either. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who's not too sure national league is very high standard over in the uk so uh, <laughs> i think you're you're playing it down their piece somewhat mm-hmm. uh, um, um on the note, then, I suppose, from a performance perspective, so obviously sports psychology, you know, there's a lot you can get from your athletes. And I suppose, you know, from my own respect, I've been fortunate enough to work with a sports psychologist this year. And it's been so nice to be like, geez, like, I'm not sure how to handle this scenario. How do I get this right in my own mind? So I'd, I'm not arriving to a situation fear you know feared up um and I can perform and enjoy the sport um as I want to um so I suppose on the note of performance whether it's in a a sporting element or you know day-to-day performance getting your best foot forward um is there any kind of I don't know if you want to give an example but or is there any key element there that you look to you know work with a a person to get the most out of themselves yeah I I'm um and you you might have heard this on the the 80% mental podcast I'm big into uh mindfulness and acceptance commitment as a Mm. as a way of working with athletes so one of the one of the reasons why people struggle so much is because we, we think of certain emotions and feelings and sensations as intrinsically bad. So we think of things like anxiety. We think, well, I can't, I, I, I shouldn't be anxious. I can't play if I'm nervous. And, you know, we think of the, the sort of physical sensations associated with that as well. The butterflies in the stomach and the heart rate increasing and bang my microphone and the heart rate increasing. And we think, oh, well, that's bad. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I should be calm. Um, and we have this idea of, I guess, what's called an ideal performance state. Like, in order to perform well, I have to be X, Y, Z, you know, free from anxiety, fully confident, fully mentally prepared, all of that stuff. And it's just not true. It's, it's just not true. What we need to be able to do is look at those emotions as, and, and sensations and feelings as, as neither good or bad. They're just, they're just there. So like anxiety, for example, the heart rate, the butterflies in the stomach. Well, that's the same sensation as when you're excited about something. But we're saying that, you know, we're telling ourselves that we're nervous and that's like a bad thing. Um, The thoughts that are going around in our head telling us that we can't do something, we can't do this, we can't do that. They're just thoughts. They're just strings of words that your brain is putting together. So if you can step back for a second you know, if you can step back so that those thoughts and those feelings aren't necessarily like right in front of your face, you can take a little bit of a step back and see, okay, well, actually, it's just, it's just a thought. It's just a physical sensation. I can play well and be anxious at the same time. I can feel nervous and I can still execute the skills that my body knows how to execute. So for me, it's, it's being able to take a step back from those emotions, sensations, feelings that we think of as negative, see them as exactly what they are strings of words and bodily sensations and that kind of frees us up a little bit to just be able to go out there and perform with those things 
rather than spending all of our time just trying to get rid of it, get rid of anxiety, like trying to calm down, trying to not be nervous, trying to not be angry or upset or sad or whatever. Just, just let it be. Mm. Just kind of accept that it's there and do what you know how to do anyway. Flip. I will be reverting back to that, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably many times during this week alone. Sadly, <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, so to maybe, you know, bring things, uh, well, yeah, back to um, you, Pete, in the sense um, of, you know, we kind of go through life and there'd be certain moments or pockets that probably stand out for us um, in some shape or form. For you, what would you say is a defining moment? So I, I can think of a, a specific moment that basically changed the course of my entire life. I mentioned earlier that I, uh, I, I graduated from a psychology degree and then didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually got glandular fever. So I was like ill on the couch for like six months after I graduated. So that was fun. Um, but uh, w- when I eventually kind of got back, I, I went home for a little bit, came back down to Sheffield, wasn't sure what I was going to do, just tried to get a, a job as a lot of students do. So I ended up working in the home office, just processing work permit applications. And it was supposed to be one of those like six months, I'll just do this while I look for something better, think of what I want to do. And then like two years later, I'm still there. And I, I remember, I distinctly remember this. Like I just one day, I just thought, what, what am I doing? Like, what am I actually doing? And with no plan whatsoever of what I was going to do, I typed out my notice at my work computer, printed it out, went over and handed it to my line manager and said, right, here you go. Here's my notice. I'm, I'm done with this <laughs> and, <laughs> and left. So two weeks later, I'd left. I had no plan as to what I was actually going to do. No idea. Um, and but thankfully, I had the support of my, my family to help me out a little bit. And my um, wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, and, you know, we made it through. I made a little bit of money from coaching. I went back to do some of that for a while. And that's when I came across sports psychology and ended up going back to do the master's degree. But, um, yeah, just that it's the sort of thing where it's really easy to just slip into, okay, I'm getting a steady paycheck here. Like, mm. you know, it's, it's easy. I can get up in the morning, go to work, finish at five o'clock, don't have to think about it again. And it's just easy to fall into that, that trap. And just that one moment of like, what on earth are you doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> just end it now like it doesn't matter if you don't have a plan just end it because this is not what you want to do like that is why I'm sitting here talking to you now um, because that put me on the path to getting back into academia getting into sports psychology doing the PhD uh, like everything cool that I've done in my life has come from you know from 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 that basically so that's like my my defining moment um, which I, I crystal clear, I clearly remember the look on my line manager's face. Like, What's that? Read it. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's very brave. Even if it feels crystal clear sometimes, you know, it's so easy to get those. Oh, but you know, comfort and you're being a bit wild here with this notion. So fair, fair play for um, sticking to your guns there. Um, is there anyone 
I suppose over the course of your life that's played a more central role or has been quite influential for you, Pete? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as anyone, I would imagine. Um, two spring to mind immediately. First, obviously, is my mom. Um, she, there were, you know, I, I grew up in a big family. There were seven of us uh, okay. and, and just my mom uh, looking after us. And uh, she, you know, this was like Gates said in the 80s as well. Right? So mm. she, you know, drilled into us the importance of education. Um, you know, she taught me to read before I went to school. I was reading when I was three. Um, and she kind of drilled that into us, the importance of an education above, above everything else. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's a huge thing to have. Um, especially in that area growing up, you know, mixed race family in Gateshead in the eighties, like having, having somebody who just really drives that importance of, you know, get an education, do well in school, learn how to speak properly, you know, not with a, <laughs> you know, you can speak with a Geordie accent with your friends, but when you're in, you know, <laughs> you have to have your telephone voice. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my mum was a huge influence and she, she fought for all of us throughout our school lives as well. Uh, to make sure that um, we all got the, the best education that, that, that we could do, um, so yeah, massive shout out to my to my mom who looked after all of us. Um, the, the other person is is my my wife, um, and we've been together. We we got together um, pretty much like the last two weeks of university. Oh, so we like we we. You know, we had mutual friends um, and we sort of like knew of each other, I think. Um, but literally two weeks before we went home, like that's when we got together. And I live in Gateshead and she lived in Cardiff as well. So we could not be further apart. But um, yeah, we, we, we've been together uh, for, for, for a long time. And I, I hope she's not listening. Um, but she is <laughs> the person who really enabled me to be authentically me and you know I, I i learned to be my fully truly authentic self uh, with her and that is i mean you know in all honesty it probably took me a long time to get there um but i think that's probably the most important thing that i have discovered I suppose the importance of being authentic and being able to be authentic and finding spaces where you can be authentic. You don't have to pretend to be anybody else. You don't have to do things to please anybody else or, or any of that stuff. You can be truly completely authentic. And I think that's, that's such an important thing to be able to do for anyone, um, for their own, you know, mental health and mental well-being. Um, and yeah, so she's the person who sort of helped me to to, to do that, really. Um, so yeah, two people who've really stood out and played a, a, a fairly significant role in, in why I am who I am. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not the first time I've said it, but um, when we've asked this question before, I wanted them to try and get that person on as a guest. So I might be going <laughs> for your mom and your other half. <laughs> <laughs> they sound fab <laughs> um that's brilliant i suppose actually so and this leads us nicely maybe into uh the last question because i'm conscious of time um pete and 
we're very grateful of what you've given us so far. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thank you. Um, for me in the pandemic, a positive was to actually come around to the concept of what you've touched on there, being authentic with yourself through and through and, and trying to focus on, you know, what is working for you and being comfortable with not moving in a, a manner that someone else wants you to move in potentially. It also shone a light um, on some of the uh, concepts that you and Rab were discussing um, at the beginning of this podcast, which for me, like I'll hold my hands up and I was actually horrified at myself by how ignorant I was to so much that we has now come to light. And I'm so grateful uh, that it's come to light and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to do better and be better, um, you know, on so many of those aspects. Um, so for me, that was this last year and a half has been horrifically difficult in one respect, trying to just navigate uh, through. Mm. But, you know, there's been positive. So for you, uh, Pete, out of the madness, maybe it wasn't a load of madness for the last year and a half for you. Oh, but... no, no, it absolutely was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what for you has been maybe something positive that has come out of the chaos then? Um. I mean, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge that it has not been easy for a lot of people and a lot of people have had it far, far worse than I have. Um, it's been a pretty horrific year all around in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Um, having said that, uh, I am fortunate enough to be in a job where I've been able to work from home. Uh, and again, really grateful for for, for that. Um, because I've been able to spend time, you know, with my family that I wouldn't have had. I'm normally out at six o'clock in the morning and back at like five, six at night or whatever, depending on what day it is. Um, so I've been able to come down and have breakfast with my daughter, uh, you know, between the ages of sort of two and a half and four, I've been at home. Um, and, and I wouldn't have been if I'd had to get up and, and, and leave the house and go to work every day. So I've been able to come down and, um, and you know, have lunch and, spend half an hour playing and then, you know, do half an hour's extra work later on at night. So having that flexibility uh, has just allowed me to have that really, really precious time that I, I just wouldn't have had. Um, so I'm, I'm ever kind of, again, grateful, but I realize how fortunate I am to have been able to do that. Um, the actual teaching part of it's been a nightmare because I've basically been sat <laughs> talking on Zoom to myself for like 18, 18 months. Yeah. Um, so if there's any students listening, put your cameras on. Just put your cameras on. I was just yeah. about to ask that. I was and, like, and, and just speak up. Blessed? Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, honestly, it's, I feel like I've just been talking to myself for like a year. <laughs> but, but yeah, very grateful to, to have been able to have that time at home. Um, but I think the other thing as well uh, that, that you spoke about, Kate, there was people kind of being forced to stare some of these injustices that we've seen in the face. Because normally what happens, like we've seen this stuff before, but normally what happens is it's in the news for five minutes and then everybody goes back to work or they, you know, wash the car or go shopping or whatever. But we were just forced to stop and stare at it because everybody was at home and mm -hmm. nobody had anything to do. We had like a one hour of state mandated exercise a day. You know, so. <laughs> Um, so 
again, in all of that chaos and horrificness, that's not a word, um, horror, the word I was looking for, <laughs> um, you know, pe- people have been forced to stare it in the face and to acknowledge some of this stuff and to really think about how they might approach the world differently or see the world differently because of it. And I think that's a really positive thing. Um, so yeah, a couple of things that have come out of the chaos that, uh, yeah, I would say I was, I was kind of grateful for. Brilliant. Um, well, we haven't really got to acknowledge it uh, too much in the last 40 minutes or so, but the 80% mental podcast is, you know, Rob and I are huge fans and it's just, there's been so many interesting uh, conversations had. So if anyone's listening who hasn't uh, tuned in, I highly recommend um, on that note. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's always enjoyable. So so thank you for your work on that. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, thank you for listening. Um, so yeah, so I think we'll set you free now, Pete, to be honest. Uh, thank you so, so much uh, for today, for your insights, your thoughts, um, and for, for giving us your time. It's been been an absolute blast. So thank you so, so much. No, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me on.